This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. My name is Anne Ulizio, Director of Special Projects for Arch Street Press, and I will be your host today. Today, our guests are David Schwartz, co-founder and campaign director of the Real Food Challenge, and Sunny Kim, a student leader at Johns Hopkins University and member of the National Steering Committee for the Real Food Challenge. The Real Food Challenge is an organization uniting students for just and sustainable food. And by leveraging the power of youth and universities, the RFC is creating a healthy, fair, and green food system. Through involvement with the RFC, student leaders are gaining access to networking, learning, and leadership development opportunities to promote their futures as changemakers. And the major goal is to shift $1 billion of existing university food budgets away from industrial farms and junk food towards real food, which is food that is local, community-based, humane, and sustainable by 2020. Since 2008, participants and agents in the Real Food Challenge Network have secured over $50 million worth of pledges to, to purchase more of such real food. This has been made possible through development and the use of two main tools, which are the Real Food Calculator and the Real Food Campus Commitment. So, so far, 26 colleges and universities have signed the Real Food Campus Commitment, which pledges to increase three key areas, access to real food, institutional transparency, and student and community engagement around, around these initiatives. So David has been involved in the movement for just, for just and sustainable agriculture since high school, and he hasn't looked back. While studying at Brown University, he was instrumental in starting a student garden, kicking off a campaign to redirect $1 million of school food dollars to real food, called the Sustainable Food Initiative, and was all the while busy planting the seeds of the Real Food Challenge with his co-founder, Anim Steele. He graduated from Brown in 2009. And Sonny led the, real first, the, the first Real Food Challenge campaign in a high school as a student at the Hotchkiss school, school in Connecticut. She graduated in time to help lead an RFC campaign at Johns Hopkins, and she's now leading the efforts to develop and execute the university's plan. She was recently named a finalist for the Unite Four Inspiration Award, along with her fellow steering committee members. So David and Sunny, thank you so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure to have you join us today. We're happy to be here, too. <clears throat> thank you for your introduction. As is the case with many of our social entrepreneurs in our podcast series, their childhood and their family lives seem to have a profound impact on their areas of interest. So, David, you grew up in a Jewish household, from what I understand, and in communities with stark socioeconomic differences, which is something you've expressed before. So how did these circumstances influence the way that you see the world? Two very different communities. Uh, one was uh, mm-hmm. much more of an inner city, working class neighborhood. Uh, and another was uh, a much wealthier suburb. And in the first, I I was came to find that that food access was a huge issue. The only main uh, mainline grocery store in our neighborhood had been shuttered for as long as I could remember, um, and it was hard to find access to fresh food. Kids kids would would <laughs> go without their school lunch except on the days uh, when it was brought to you by a a uh, fast food chain, um, and and that was uh, the same fast food chain that they would give us coupons to if uh, we read enough books in school. Um, and that was the reality. It wasn't until my, my family moved that I uh, you know, came to live in a much wealthier suburb uh, where you know, there was Whole Foods, you know, supermarkets, farmers markets, uh, not to mention you know, greener streets and, and more jobs and uh, you know, all sorts of other things. So I, I think from growing up, traveling back and forth between those two communities, it one taught me a big lesson about uh, the issues of, of economic disparity, of segregation that still plague so many communities in the United States. Uh, but it also taught me a lot about the power of people coming together. Uh, my friends in the city, I 
felt like I had such a, a keen understanding of so many of the mm-hmm. social issues uh, going on in our country today, uh, but didn't always have the resources to make the change they wanted to see. Whereas my friends out in the suburbs uh, had all the resources to, to pursue uh, all sorts of creative endeavors, uh, but often were isolated and, and, and sometimes ignorant of what was going on with their neighbors. So at the core here, I, I, what Real Food Challenge is doing, I think it draws on that lesson the power of young people coming together across difference uh, to make change. Um, and, and I think when we build those bridges, particularly around the issue of food, which is so fundamental to everyone, regardless of what background you come from, uh, when we're able to build those bridges, I think young people are in- capable of, of tremendous things. Hmm. Very interesting. So you, you, know, you had this lesson very early on, and you definitely seem to have carried it through your college experience at Brown, where you started the Sustainable Food Initiative. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about that, sort of how you got involved with this campaign and how you ended up working with your partner, Anim? Sure, yeah. It, you know, I think by the time I got to college, um, there was the, the sort of first glimpses of what we now people refer to as the quote unquote food movement, but there was it wasn't coherent at that point. You know, you might find on a given campus uh, uh, a group like mine that was starting a urban farm run by students. On other campus, you might find uh, students who were uh, advocating for farm worker rights, um, or on another campus that were people were interested in issues of trade justice and international trade and free trade agreements that were being passed. But I think the, the sad part was that we didn't really see ourselves as part of anything larger together. Um, so we had some great, great experiences at Brown. There was work before I got there. And when I got there, we, we started a farmer's market on campus. We started this urban farm. And we started to work with the dining halls, which we came to find uh, so, sold $6.5 million worth of food every year. Now, when you're a small farmer in, in Rhode Island, just a half an hour away and struggling to make ends meet, hustling to farmer's market or farmer's market, or you're a slightly larger farmer who your only option seems to be just to sell into the commodity market with such low margins. Um, You look to an institution uh, like a university in your community and say, wow, that's an institution that's sort of a mid-sized market, could, could be a stable market with consumers who are educated and interested in what we're doing. Um, and yet there was a disconnect. It wasn't happening. <laughs> you know, for all, for all the, the good that, you know, so many universities speak to when it comes to sustainability, the dollars and cents weren't getting to the most innovative, the most green uh, farms and food businesses, the ones that were treating their workers well. Um, it just wasn't happening. So it was around that time that I, I did connect with uh, Anim Steele, another founder of Rifu Challenge, uh, Tim Galerno uh, out in California, and a number of others who were having these same visions of what could we do as young people, as students, if we brought our ideas of justice and sustainability in the food system together and really focused it on a common goal. Uh, and that's where the idea of a, a billion-dollar shift came from, that if we could harness the the economic power of our institutions. Uh, that could be the fastest way to expand and grow the market for real food in this country. Because a recent study showed that when it comes to healthy, fair, and affordable, uh, green and affordable food, uh, it's, for all the hype, it's still less than 2% of our national food economy. Uh, and so we need uh, a real a boost, an accelerator. And we think that through uh, changing university markets, but then also inspiring a new generation to take up this issue, um, we can have a, a real catalytic impact. Wow, and I think what's what's really key about that is that you and the other co-founders sort of just saw something that had existed all along, but no one else really made the connection that the, you know these universities could be serving as that missing link, you know, in between the smaller farmers and these huge sort of corporate food production. Um, companies and taking advantage of that as a mid-sized market uh it's really it's incredible that you know you were able to sort of observe everything that was happening around you and just make it happen um so that's fantastic so sunny um i'd like to talk about your experience with the hotchkiss school 
you had worked for three years on the student-owned farm at the school. So can you just tell us about these three years, um, you know, essentially getting your hands dirty on the farm and sort of familiarizing yourself with the operations and how food production works in our in our country? Mm-hmm. Well, our school owned, a, I went to a school that owned a farm, um, a beautiful, very large farm that directly supplied our dining hall. Um, so the first the first thing that was so rich for me was that I could see like the potatoes that we harvested yesterday would be served as, you know, a potato salad the next mm. day. And um, sort of knowing that there is like a piece of my sweat in that is, is um, a different experience, um, especially when you're uh, away um, from home and your relationship with food and cooking is not the same um, as when you were with your family um, with a kitchen and a dining and a dining table and things like that. Um, but when I first started farming, I actually had this very silly romantic um, hope. Like I was kind of thinking somewhere along the lines of out of Africa, hmm. um, which turned out <laughs> to be not true. <laughs> and I was very um, fastly disappointed um with, you know, scrubbing potatoes in ice cold water that smelled like sulfur mm. and scrubbing chicken poop and just a lot of bodily hard work. Um, and then I was sad and I complained a lot and I was like, why did I, you know, why am I doing this? Um, but then I kept coming back um, season after season for three years. And um, I think what made me come back and the lure of it for me was that it farming sort of got to a fundamental part of me and i think this is a fundamental part of all of humanity of you know like you said getting my hands dirty i think that's very instinctual um <laughs> for me and um to to grow things and and to harvest it and to really experience what the earth is giving us all the time i think there was something a satisfaction that was really addicting in that and and I couldn't not farm um yeah hmm. and so so I started you know I'm from Seoul South Korea I'm this you know city girl um, <laughs> <laughs> that's not very athletic in any way and and then I farming taught me to be a person with grit um right <laughs> and about my own agency sure. so much about my own agency um <laughs> yeah wow. It's very empowering. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, it was really empowering. Absolutely. Still is. <laughs> yeah. So you actually started the RFC chapter at the Hotchkiss School, is that correct? Yeah. So how did you get linked up with your organization initially? Was it, um, did you hear about the RFC and sort of have an idea to bring it to to the Hotchkiss School? Where, where was the link there? Mm. Well, the link itself was... Um, we just I just had a, an amazing team back at the Hotchkiss School. I was really close with um, the dining hall manager, which is rare for students to have such like a personal relationship with a dining manager. Right. And RFC was one of their sort of, I don't know, they heard it somewhere. But then I think for the link for me came to when I first, so this started with the project that I was doing in the winter, um, my senior year, that I, I wanted to leave um with some sort of like a legacy or like I, I wanted to make a mark, I guess. Um, <laughs> and I wanted to make a mark with something that I really cared about. Um, so I wanted to learn more about the food system, just the American food system in general. Um, but the first challenge I came to with that project was that I couldn't define what sustainable food meant. And when I was linked with the Real Food Challenge, that that's what the Real Food Challenge um, offered was hard boundaries of um, – what real food means and real food has a values driven definition um which is authentic food that truly nourishes um but then there are also these um applicable i guess definitions that we could uh, apply and sort of assess each item of food um that are defined as locally grown or ecologically sound practices humane animal treatment or fair trade um, and there, there's like a more complicated rubric in that, but just those definitions, I, I think gave me a lot of clarity and transparency on like the way to comprehensively understand food and 
and how they can be defined as real. Right, right. So Sunny, that's your sort of concept of what real food means to you. So David, what does it mean to you? And what's why integrate real food into college and university communities aside from the the economic incentives of helping out um, local farmers and um, sort of shifting away from the larger um, the larger food production side of things. Um, what's another What's another goal there? Sure. Well, I, I resonate a lot with what Sonny's saying about about the the importance of sustainable agriculture. You know, uh, independent farmers in this country and around the world are some of the most brilliant, <laughs> capable, strong, multifaceted uh, people on earth. And I mm-hmm. think their their work needs to be honored um, and valued. That said, when it comes to uh, our generation of millennials, we are predicted to be the first generation in American history that has a shorter lifespan uh, than our parents. Hmm. And that's thanks largely to the food that we're eating and the issues of diet-related disease. So I think at the same time, uh, while we're facing some pretty dire health outcomes, uh, we're also seeing that food has become one of the leading drivers of climate change. Uh, Up to 33% of all greenhouse gases come from the food and agricultural sectors. So we we, we have come to this point where our food system, uh, rather than be a, a driver of health, wealth, and, and, and dignity really uh, is instead um, really at the, at the core of a, a number of the catastrophes that are, that are waiting for us uh, uh, as we, we grow to, into adulthood. Hmm. So uh, I think at the same time what we're seeing is that millennials aren't willing to accept business as usual. Yeah. Um, this is a generation that has shown that we're – powerful and capable of standing up for what we believe in. Um, I think at the heart of that, on some level, in a a society here in the U.S. that is uh, so overly consumerist in so many ways that we're, we're, I think like Sonny said, very disconnected from some of the fundamentals of of community, of of nourishment um, in, in that context. I think this is a millennial generation that is searching for authenticity. Um, authenticity in the marketplace, authenticity in our relationships. Not easy in a Facebook world. Uh, but I think <laughs> right. it, at the end of the day, that's when we talk about real food. Real food, you know? Yeah. I think everyone can sort of resonate with that idea. Mm. Um, so we're talking about food that, that truly nourishes us. And, and not just our bodies, but our communities, uh, the people who grew it, uh, and, and certainly the earth. So, uh, you know, we've translated that concept into this real food calculator that that uh, um, Sunny was describing—that's sort of an, an industry-facing, much more accessible uh, set of guidelines that you could actually go into a grocery store and follow to feel a little bit better about what you're putting in your body. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it really comes back to that, that idea of of authenticity and real, real food. Right, right. So clearly another key aspect of your work is sort of is raising awareness about these sort of imminent <laughs> these imminent problems that our generation could be facing if we don't change change that status quo and um, sort of shift away from what's comfortable for us mm-hmm. and what we've become essentially complacent with, you know, this mm-hmm. mass-produced food that has very little nutritional value, has detrimental effects on the environment. It's just a matter of opening up your eyes and, and plugging into initiatives like this that can really make a difference for yourself, for the, you know, for future generations. Mm-hmm. Um, and you had actually met, you had mentioned the real food calculator. Can you talk to me a little bit more about how this metric works? Um, you mentioned going to, into the grocery store and sort of being able to gauge what's best uh, to purchase. Is that how this tool is is sort of set up? Sure, I can speak to that briefly. Uh, sure. you, you know, we we live in a a, a time of of green noise. Uh, I'd say mm-hmm. you, you walk into a uh, <laughs> I like that, supermarket yeah. <laughs> and, and you're just bombarded with a yes. million labels, a million claims, and there's so much uh, sort of falsehood in, in, in our marketing. It's, it's, right. it's really hard to figure out, you know, even if you want to eat good, it's hard to figure out <laughs> what is even What's good anymore. Good? Yeah. Right. So it's, it's super hmm. challenging. Um, 
and and, and imagine now if you are trying to feed thirty thousand students at a at a major university, um, it's just an added stress. So, right. um, so at, at its core, the the roofing calculator uh, has a set of of basically lays out for you. Here's the labels that mean something and that we consider real food. Here's the ones that are BS and you know yeah. Don't 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 count it, you know. Right. And, and and then uh, there's folks all around the country, uh, students like like Sunny who are, you know, getting into the actual line by line invoice data uh, from their universities and doing that calculation, doing that research, trying to figure out, you know, wh- where this food actually comes from, and then does it meet these real food guidelines? Um, and the result is is uh, an analysis that. Hopefully tells you a little bit more about what you're putting in your body, um, but can also guide an institution to start to make shifts and figure out, wow, why is it that only 5% of our meat is is anything that can be considered local, humane, or sustainable? Wow. Um, we need to make change there and and start to, to make those shifts. Absolutely. So I, I'd like to just sort of get into what you know both of you are doing on a daily basis with the RFC. Um, Sunny, can you talk to us about your involvement with Johns Hopkins right now and sort of where your work is? Mm-hmm. Um, so I stepped in and sort of, I guess, matriculated and into Hopkins when we were about to sign um, our commitment for 35% real food by 2020. And I'm really proud of that uh, number because sort of <clears throat> RFC's um, minimum, I guess, sort of commitment or like uh, advice is to pledge 20% by 2020, but we pledged a surprisingly large number and that was sort of our president's, I don't know why he thought it w- would be just sort of funny <laughs> to walk into our commitment and like cross out the 20 and then write 35%. Right, right. Um, so now it is in our jobs um, to see where we are at now and then to get to that 35%. Um, so last year I spent um, being an intern for dining and, as David mentioned, doing the line-by-line data logging. And um, it is, for me, what, what came true the most of that process was that it was, it was a process of students holding our, our, what we're eating accountable and um, demanding transparency. Um, so I, I guess I could say, like, let's say we bought, um, I don't know, a frozen shepherd's pie from Cisco, which is one of the largest um, food um, distributors in the country. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to de- de- define if, if this is real food, and I need to go through the categories. And but there's so many ingredients in it, and let's it's a has like frozen corn and uh, carrot and beans in it. And but then there we have no idea where those beans came from right. and where it was harvested, when it was harvested. Who knows? It could have been harvested like five years ago and have been like you know sitting in a freezer in wow. a warehouse, you know. Right. Mm-hmm. And then there are like ingredients like I don't know soy lecithin that I didn't know about, and I'm like, what is this thing? <laughs> right. Um, and I need to go research that, mm-hmm. and I need to call Cisco up and be like can you tell me where this item number, yada, 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 shepherd's pie come from? And then they're like, oh, it com- came from this brand. And then I call this brand and I'm, do you know, have any idea where your corn is coming from? <laughs> they don't know. Um, so that is, that is for me, that's urgent. And, and yes. that is an issue. Um, and us doing the calculator is a process of trying to sort of peel that <laughs> sort of, uh, the darkness into light. Um, right. Yeah. I think what's exciting about this is is not only the the incredible you know light that they're shining on these issues at Johns Hopkins, but take that and you multiply it by a hundred, and imagine Cisco uh, hearing from a hundred <laughs> of some of their largest clients. I mean, universities mm. are big business. Right. Calling up and saying, "We want to know where this comes from." We want to see more sustainable food. We want you to talk to your suppliers and uh, you know Mr. Shepherd Pie and and see if he can start to shift some of his ingredients so it does qualify as real food. Right. You know, mm-hmm. That 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 multiplier effect um, is huge. 
it sets a, a sort of a new standard, a new normal for the industry that has previously been able to use institutional markets as a dumping ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, at a grocery store, at least you have to compete. But the way that these institutional markets have worked for so long is that if you paid a high enough kickback, uh, if you if you if you sort of gave a little something to a corporate office of one of these cafeteria contractors, then you could push through your product to hundreds or you know of their accounts all around the country right. without any competition yeah. no, no bid contracts uh, and so that type of, of, of corruption is, is sort of what we are beginning to undo here um, by uniting the power of, of transparency and then these purchasing shifts uh, all around the country. Wow. And like you said, it's even without, not just without competition from other food purveyors, but without knowing what's actually going into that food as well, uh, which is kind of terrifying, to be honest. Um, This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate Under 30 interview with Director of Special Projects Anna Lizio and David Schwartz and Sunny Kim of the Real Food Challenge. Were these, when you, you know, Sunny, when you gave Cisco a call and just asked about, you know, the, the source of these ingredients, were they shocked? Were they sort of giving any pushback or any sort of, I guess, surprise that they had heard from someone calling about this? Yeah, and the thing that I sort of realized that the people like, answering the phones for like customer service Cisco, for example, or, you know, they could be in the middle, I don't know, of Arizona yeah. at their like sort of call center. <laughs> sure. They don't know what shepherd pie is being shipped to Baltimore. Yeah. So in that case, we need to like sort of find the sort of regional um, warehouse or distributing um, place and who is in charge there. Mm-hmm. And I found, and to this echoes David's point, when I say that I'm with um, Bon Appetit at Johns Hopkins <laughs> and I would like to know um, I think that's power, and I think if I just said I'm just like some random student, um, and I would or like a random customer, and I would like to know they would sort of, you know, not yeah. care so much. But because we are such a big customer, that they do care, and then they try at least, and yeah. Mm-hmm. And and so David, what what is your daily um, your daily role at with the Real Food Challenge? You know, as a campaign director, what are your major projects going on right now sure yeah well I I, I I get the distinct pleasure of, of working with Sunny on a national level as well mm-hmm. um, through the Real Food Challenge steering committee where we're really looking at the big picture direction of where this movement should go um, how to make sure that we're having a, a, a large impact and adapting as uh, issues in the industry change and as the interests of young people um, <laughs> in many cases, just grow more and more ambitious. Um, so, uh, you know, I work day to day to bring in resources for the organization, uh, talk with our, our funding partners, um, other amazing food justice organizations around the country that are excited to see this youth movement grow and figuring out ways that we can support each other uh, and and uh, do some really good work. So, day to day, I have the uh, the great joy to to be able to support our team to to make it all happen, and also connect with outside partners and um, bring in more more uh, collaboration and, and more resources to uh, the work we're doing. That's great. And what kind of what kind of partners have you um, linked up with so far? Sure. Yeah. Um, 
well, uh, a great organization that is just coming out with some big news today is uh, the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, which is a farm worker group from a small town, rural town in southwest Florida, which happens to be the epicenter of uh, the U.S.'s uh, tomato industry. Um, and they've worked for 20 plus years uh, to bring justice to the fields. This is one of those places where the plantation model of agriculture never went away. Um, and, uh, and the treatment of migrant farm workers, um, is been inhumane at, at best and in its worst cases, um, has been prosecuted by, uh, the, the feds as cases of modern day slavery where people are held against their will to work in the agricultural fields. It still happens. Wow. Um, it's a credible group down there that's, that's, uh, fighting for farm worker rights and they, 20 years later, have gotten some of the world's largest purchasers, including Walmart and McDonald's and Burger King, to side with farm workers and pass through just a penny more per pound of tomatoes. Just a penny more per pound would be enough to nearly double their wages. Costs the consumer hardly anything. People argue about, oh, you know, real food might cost more. In this case, just a penny more per pound is enough to really transform the lives of, of tens of thousands of farm workers. So just today, they, they're releasing a, a consumer-facing label. Um, so we've been out there on the picket lines and street marches and protests mm -hmm. at corporate headquarters, um, and we now have integrated uh, that label and their certification that that guides the... the uh, the fair food procurement program uh, to ensure that there is justice in the tomato fields. We're now making sure that universities are, are purchasing those tomatoes as well. Um, and so, so it's partners like that that are doing just incredible work uh, out in the field that we as a student organization, um, having access to the powerful institutions that we do, having a, a real powerful voice as young people in society, we need to be standing in solidarity with, with those types of groups and, and shining a light on the incredible work that's happening that, that people may not know about because it's happening in the in the boondocks of Southwest Florida, and yet <laughs> the ripple effect of of their work is is transforming tens of thousands of lives. Right. Despite all this, I love that term that you used before, the green noise. Um, that's great. I mean, so despite all this green noise that you might see in the supermarket about. Uh, this food is natural, this food is organic, and it's not really knowing where it's coming from. There are these initiatives like this cooperative in, in Florida that are doing great work, and you guys are making all the right moves to link up with people who are really going to make that that impact that's mm -hmm. necessary. So, David, you also sort of touched on this multicultural principle of the of the work with the RFC. Mm -hmm. um, so can you tell us tell us more about how the model sort of takes these cultural implications into account when you're designing the campaigns? Sure, yeah. And I think you're referring to, you know, at our founding, we, we set down on paper uh, six core principles to guide our work. Yes. Uh, you know, if the strategies change or the goals change, we, we want these principles to guide us. And one of them is, is about multiculturalism. Um, the piece to me that stands out most about that principle in our work today is really acknowledging that where we are today uh, has a lot to do about where we've been. Um, mm -hmm. That it's no accident that the food system has the problems that we're talking about today and that is in need of such uh, a dire you know, change. Um, it, it doesn't take much to look, to look back and see, well, uh, we're, we're farming very much on stolen land in this country. Yep. Uh, that's the impact of, of colonization and, and the genocide of native peoples. And the, our agricultural industries, I mean, there's always been small farmers, there's always been uh, folks who, who forage and, and tend the land. But our agricultural industries were slave industries. Mm -hmm. That is the model and the economics that, that, that they were built on. Yeah. Uh, the way to exploit first uh, slave labor and then wage labor. Um, to, to the utmost, to squeeze the most out of the land and out of the people um, to, to get cheap food and, and largely for export and for international markets. Um, the logic of that plantation, you know, if you, if you had looked out across the Americas uh, just 150 years ago, you'd see an unbroken line of plantations from Buenos Aires to, to Baltimore. Hmm. Now, the logic of that plantation is something that we haven't yet gotten rid of in this country. You know, the, the, the names may have changed, 
the practices may have changed some, but that fundamental idea that treats food not as a source of community, not as a source of nourishment, uh, not as a, as a wellspring of culture, but mm -hmm. as just a commodity mm -hmm. and treats people as agricultural workers, processing plant workers, uh, cafeteria workers, as just another cog in the machine. Uh, that, is, that is the fundamental problem. So while our solutions work to, to grow the market for real food, um, I think at its core, we have to start from a place of understanding our history mm -hmm. if we're to make a transformative impact. Wow, that's very, very powerful. I think that's one of the one of the things that sets the real food challenge apart in its approach is this this definitely this folding in of our history and acknowledging that yes, it did come from a dark place, but it doesn't have to be in a dark place. Mm -hmm. If we, like Sunny was saying, you're really just shedding light on on this darkness of where food is coming from, how people are treated along the way that produce this food. So I'd like to to ask a little bit more about this. Um, this goal that, that the RFC has about shifting the $1 billion of existing university food budgets toward real food by 2020. Um, so what, what are the biggest challenges that you both anticipate or have seen thus far in reaching the goal in the next six years? Well, I think that um, as David mentioned briefly about the kickbacks, um, I'd like to explain that more because I think that's sort of like the biggest challenge and it's sort of at the core of what we're trying to fight against. Um, so the kickbacks are agreements between large um, corporate ag vendors, let's say, for example, Tyson Chicken, um, and, um, you know, a corporate food service um, company like Sodexo or Airmark or Bon Appetit or the others out there. Um, so they make a deal um, and they say if all of the uh, cafeterias that you sort of um, cater by Tyson Chicken, then out of our revenue, we'll cut a percentage of that and kick it back to you, hmm. to your corporate office. And this is a fact and this is not a theory. Um, and that's why the link between... Um, between those, you know, big, you know, big ag guys and the big corporate world are so strong because they're all money driven. So for, for example, like Hopkins, um, in Baltimore, there's this amazing, um, fair, fair trade, or, um, local chicken farm. And we, I mean, at Hopkins, we are buying from them, but in, in another case, um, <laughs> There could be chicken out there that we can buy that's uh, available and is real food, but because of this kickback, that could be preventing um, schools from from even suggesting that, hmm. um, because they're like directly related to like the bonuses of the corporate corporate food systems. I don't know people. Right. <laughs> right. Um, so I think that's that's a challenge that we're trying to face and trying to demand and call people out on. Um, but with the Roof of Challenge, I mean, there are ways to sort of go around this kickback system. And um, it's a case-by-case -case, um, sort of effort. But it's it's not hopeless. But the fact that there is such a strong link. Um, so, like, the, the big vendors, in a way, have already figured out that the colleges have a lot of purchasing power. And they're misusing it while we're trying to take advantage of it to shift it to a real food economy. Right. Yeah. Right. So, David, what about you? What kind of challenges are you anticipating or are you identifying as the biggest challenge currently? Well, uh, <laughs> sadly, this is an easy question to answer. I, I, <laughs> you know, uh, we wouldn't do this work if it, if it wasn't challenging. Exactly. If it was a cakewalk, it, you know, uh, we, we, we'd be in the, back in the Garden of Eden by now. <laughs> right. Um, uh, <laughs> so, I mean, another thing, you know, that you just look out and you scan, see what's going on is um, right now the, the two largest uh, uh, distributors in this country who ferry um, for colleges and universities up to 80% of all the food, uh, Cisco and U.S. Foods, mm -hmm. are slated to merge. Um, wow. The combined entity would be a behemoth in, in the distribution world. Um, now, the feds are looking at that to see if that's maybe a, a, an issue of monopoly and might trigger some antitrust laws. But, yeah. 
But this is happening all over the food industry, the consolidation. So I, I, I'm inspired every day by the incredible groundswell of, of companies and organizations that are really proving that uh, a diversified uh, uh, food system, decentralized food system, is, um, is the path forward. I mean, the, the, the UN has been uh, extremely clear about this in report after report, research study after research study. When you look globally, the only way, the only way we're going to be able to feed a planet of 9 billion people is if we invest in, in sustainable smallholder agriculture. Mm -hmm. That's the only way. To, to imagine that we'll feed the world through industrial plantation-style agriculture is, is a total myth. <laughs> um, and it's only going to be because of the incredible, powerful uh, uh, young women around the world who are growing food for their families and their communities. Um, that, that, is, that is the key to, to our survival as a species. Um, so it, it's, it's already out, out there. You know, you look in any country in the world and people are out there growing food. In, whether it's on the slopes of mountains or in the, in the valley bottoms, um, people are out there growing food. And I think that tenacity that we see um, generation after generation uh, is the thing that gives me hope um, and that inspires me every day. Um, I think Sunny and I have both talked about uh, farmers in our lives that have inspired us. Um, and I think it's no wonder um, and that, that the, these are people who who have kept us alive and sustained yeah. for millennia. Um, right. So I, I think uh, you know that that to me is is one of the most exciting things to uh, find people who are continuing to invest in that tradition as well as innovate and come up with exciting new business plans that that um, move that tradition forward. Sure. And just knowing that there are people that that identify that the the practices of larger corporations aren't the right way to go and they're going to stick to their guns no matter what like they're still pushing through with that tenacity and they're still maintaining their small farms their small subsistence farms or you know selling locally to their communities the right models are out there it's just a matter of alerting everyone to the fact that those are the right models i would actually like to ask about as well sort of how the the campaign is spread across the nation and how maybe the model maybe shifts depending on which universities plugged in, or uh, maybe you could just talk about, you know, the overall expansion, um, how many schools that, that the campaign is now plugged into. So, yeah, every year we work with uh, uh, folks at about 300 colleges and universities around the country. Wow. Uh, over 100,000 uh, people in those communities are, 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 are uh, affected and engaged by our work. Hmm. Um, now, it, it does look different. I mean, uh, you know, depending on on where you come from, what you even think of when you hear agriculture might be very different. Sure. Um, and if you go to uh, you know University of Georgia, uh, that looks very different than if you're uh, off at uh, UC Berkeley. Um, so uh, I think we we have set a, a sort of a model and a standard, but this is this is this is a a, a campaign and, and an initiative that. Um, is very locally adaptable. People bring to it their own excitement and energy and interest, and also their own understanding of what is needed in their community. Um, so out in California, it's been really exciting to see how uh, students and you know the food service managers who've taken on the challenge um, are now working with uh, this incredible organization called ALBA, a center for land-based training that uh, provides access to land for uh, new and immigrant farmers. Hmm. Um, and so they've built this awesome cooperative called Alba Organics um, that a lot of folks who you know, maybe were farmers in their home countries but weren't able to make ends meet um, now are on the land, now are growing food. They're aggregating that from a few dozen of these small farms so that they can actually serve uh, UC Berkeley, UC Santa Cruz, Stanford, um, and so that, in contrast to what Sonny was talking about before, you know, uh, another operation in Baltimore, big city farms, um, where they're working with community groups. In one case, I believe, an uh, organization that uh, serves uh, formerly incarcerated young men um, who themselves are setting up urban farms in the city limits and bringing that food together from a few different urban farms and serving an institution like Hopkins. So there's, you know, this looks different everywhere. 
Um, but I think that's that's some of the beauty of it. Absolutely. And so, Sunny, when you when you envision your life after college, where you're heading after college, what do you see for yourself? Um, what parts of RFC are you taking with you in your future past uh, post graduation? Hmm. In the larger realm of, of me being a part of of this fight, of this fight demanding what is right um, for us and for the earth, and especially in terms of food that I connect so deeply with, um, I've actually um, found sort of a really strong vocational calling. And through RFC, I'm still in the process of learning about the power of organizing communities and um, how together there's um, sort of like this exponentialness or this transcendentness that we can bring on that um, any individual couldn't even imagine. Mm. Um, and, and I'm from Korea, South Korea, and although I spent half of my life overseas, I, you know, that's my hometown. So that root is very deep in me. And um, I kind of have this feeling that... Um, Korea is the only sort of separated country right now in the world. And I feel that in my lifetime, we will reunite. When it when we do, I, I feel that we're going to have community conflicts. And then there's going to be a large hunger issue. Mm. And so I wonder if I can bring sustainable agriculture as a tool to solve um, the issues of hunger and like climate change at large, but also as a tool to build community. Because I know from experience, that's the most fundamental way you bring people together is to <laughs> through growing fruit, food, and doing hard work together. So yeah, that's sort of sort of my ultimate vision. But that's great. I mean, you know, just going off of your experiences thus far in your life and, and knowing that you have found this calling that really speaks to you yeah. and identifying a huge opportunity uh, is it's not something that everyone can say that they have this drive to keep them going. Uh, and David, you know, looking to the future for RFC as a whole, what do you what do you see? You know, p- besides the goal for 2020, um mm-hmm. You know, in terms of expansion or maybe change mm-hmm. in initiatives, what do you what do you foresee? Yeah, uh, this is uh, an initiative uh, that's going to continue to grow. We now have, uh, as of actually today, there's uh, a total of sixty colleges and universities that have adopted our Real Food Campus community. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, Real Food Campus commitment, uh, or have another Real Food policy uh, on the books now, and uh, I think that number is just going to continue to grow, and we're going to see that that uh, the industry is, is already starting to shift. These really enormous companies, uh, Sodexo, Aramark, Compass Group, they've realized that this isn't just another food trend. This is a generational shift that they're witnessing. Um, and they're going to have to start to uh, fundamentally rethink uh, the business model if they want to uh, stay in the, in the game. So I think we're, we're going to see that. I think what you'll also see from this generation is a pivot. Um, a pivot towards politics. Um, so far, you know, our work has been, uh, and I say when I say we, I mean people who are doing food justice work, sustainable food work. Uh, so much of it is these, you know, community-based initiatives that are starting to link up and build towards larger national initiatives. Um, and I think as that grows, you're going to see alliances between the food movement and the labor movement and the climate movement uh, and figuring out these exciting intersections um, that will give us the strength and the power to actually make make change, not just at the corner store, but on Capitol Hill. Um, so I, I think that's something to really keep our, our eye on and, and our, our, um, our, our vision open to. Absolutely. And that, you know, that definitely ties into what Sunny was saying about the power of community and sort of tying the, uh, the initiatives of different change makers together and, and realizing that while these separate movements may exist, that the goals are certainly overlapping. The climate change initiative obviously is very tied to what you guys are doing, vice versa. And there are many other movements that can be sort of uh, incorporated. So, so I'd, I'd like to ask both of you, to maybe offer a piece of advice that you would give to a young aspiring change maker, someone who's found their calling 
much like Sonny has, um, and trying to put the wheels in motion and sort of make that social change happen. Um, if there's one piece of advice that you could offer them, what would you give? <laughs> That's a tough one. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, I give a simple one, which is the to, to value the, the power of collaboration. Mm-hmm. Um, that we, we can't do this work alone. Uh, the, the myth of, of the intrepid individual who goes out there and and strikes it big, whether it's in social change or <laughs> business, um, it's rarely the case. Yeah. Uh, almost never. Uh, there's always people behind the scenes who are who are holding that person up, and and in the best cases, there's a whole you know a whole team and and community of people who are uh, holding that uh, that change and that process together. So, I would just say to any young change maker. Don't do it alone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Find a team. Mm-hmm. Uh, make it happen. In our case, it's Real Food Challenge. It's, it's only possible when tens of thousands of people stand together. Um, and whether it's 10 or tens of thousands, <laughs> right. um, that power is important. Wow. That's great. And Sunny, what would you say? Um, I would say, I would say because this is something that I tell myself every day, mm-hmm. every day is um, to not let my own comfort zones and sort of my own norms that we're created within my life um get in the way um of being present to what is now um and when and when you're that open um you i think it's inevitable you find something that makes your heart beat really really fast and when you do um go find people your people your tribe (laughs) that 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 share that same heartbeat um and then like this is just, I guess, an echo of what David said: um, is to go find them and go work with them and and be be present to the fact that you're not alone. Those are both great. I love both of those, and certainly, you know, applicable to not just you know making social change happen, but just living your life the way that you know, driven by your passions, driven by what moves you, what makes, like you said, something what makes your heart beat very fast. It's just identifying that and and realizing that there is a way to incorporate that into every aspect of your life. So, um, Mm -hmm. well, you know, we're coming to the end of our time here. So uh, I just wanted to make sure our listeners have a way to connect with both of you. So the best way for our listeners to reach David and Sunny and to support the crucial work of the Real Food Challenge is through realfoodchallenge.org. Is that right, David and Sunny? Is there another link that we could share with them to connect with you? Uh, the only uh, that that's that's right, and I'd say the only other one would be realfoodchallenge.org backslash donate. <laughs> there's <laughs> lots of ways to there's lots of ways to get involved with our work, but but you can find our email addresses there. We'd be happy to connect. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, you uh, listeners can click on the webpage links above this podcast for further details. So again, David and Sunny, it's been such a true pleasure. I really enjoyed speaking with you guys today, and I wish you all the best in the future, and we'll certainly be keeping tabs on the great work that you guys are doing. So thanks again for your time. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.